0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
1: Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast
2: listener supported wnyc studios oh wait you're listening okay all right okay, okay.
3: all
0: right you're listening, listening to radio lab, lab.
4: radio lab. from wnyc see
2: C-
5: C- yep C- <laughs> Ready? Yep. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krilwich. This is Lab. And let's just, um, let's just begin. Okay, cool. So, um... With our reporter and producer, Latif Nasser. I, I
1: think the, the best place to begin, it sounds like, is in 2008. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. So this is Jason DeLeon.
5: I am an associate
4: professor of anthropology. At the University of Michigan. And I direct the Undocumented Migration Project.
1: But, uh, back in 2008, Jason had actually just finished grad school. And
4: my doctoral dissertation was on ancient stone tools. The lithic industries of San Lorenzo and Uchtitlan, an economic and technological study. About as far removed as you can be from... <laughs> the stuff that I'm doing right now. Using obsidian technological data from 11 domestic and non-domestic contexts.
1: Just to to explain, Jason was on his way to being an archaeologist. So he would go out into the field, do these digs in different parts of Mexico, and find these little fragments of old stone tools. This study focuses primarily on percussion flake tools. Dating back to about 1000 B.C. An industry that has
4: often been ignored in Mesoamerican lithic analyses. And then he would write these papers. I evaluate
1: these models by comparing different in the frequencies of various tool types, you know, in these journals that just had, really just a handful of people would read. But uh, like many academics, and I can say this because I was an academic,
4: the study also finds that the introduction and adoption of prismatic blade technology. He
1: had this moment where he just kind of
4: hit the wall. It's like, okay, this is enough. I'm not. I'm not doing this.
1: I want nothing to do with this anymore.
4: (laughs) You know, when I finished my dissertation, I had really become kind of disillusioned with the work that I was doing, and I had no idea what I was going to do. I remember telling my wife at one point, I feel really bad. I feel like I've wasted the last 10 years of my life doing archaeology. And
1: to make matters worse... I had taken this job at University of Washington. He'd just gotten this job where he was supposed to teach the very thing he was now sick of. Um, Yeah, just like, just a a full-blown crisis. But then fate stepped in. While Jason was preparing for one of his freshman classes, someone handed him a book. By a
4: writer named um, Luis Alberto Urea called The uh, The Devil's Highway.
2: Five men stumbled out of the mountain pass so sunstruck they didn't know their own names. Couldn't remember where they'd come from. Had forgotten how long they'd been lost. One of them wandered back up a peak. One of them was barefoot. They were burned nearly black, their lips huge and cracking.
1: So the Devil's Highway is actually, well, it's a, it's a true story. It's the story of 26 men who came to the U.S. hiking their way through the Arizona desert. 14 of them died along the way.
2: And so I start reading it and... Visions of home fluttered through their minds. Soft green bushes, waterfalls... It, it,
4: it just shocked me. I mean, I knew a lot about the border, at least I thought I did. I'd grown up, you know, in South Texas. My parents were immigrants. But just, I like, couldn't believe that, um, that, you know, that this was, this is somebody's world.
2: They were drunk from having their brains baked in the pan. They were seeing God and devils. Days and days of walking, um, running out of food. And they were dizzy from drinking their own urine. You know, dying of thirst. The poisons clogging their systems.
1: And at a certain point, Jason comes across this passage.
2: Where the author is describing the things that were in these men's pockets: belt buckle with a fighting cock inlaid, one wallet in the right front pocket of his jeans, you know, some change, some keys, a silver belt buckle, fake silver watch, one comb.
4: Um, you know these personal effects: green handkerchief. And he's trying to reconstruct the story about who
2: these men were that died from from exposure. John Doe number forty-two, fewer jeans, colored piece of paper in pocket. Jason says when he read that book. A light
1: bulb went
4: on. So I bought a plane ticket. A month later, I was in the Arizona desert.
1: Jason gets out to Tucson, Arizona, and he manages to convince someone from a local NGO to basically, like, show him around and be his guide.
4: And I said, I want to look at the stuff that migrants are leaving in the desert. I was like, all right, you want to see this stuff? I'm going to take you real deep into the desert and see what, you, what you're made of. This guy just ran me
1: through the r- ringer. That part of the Sonoran Desert, it's uh, it's hilly, covered in sagebrush, cacti everywhere, red sand. And Jason says at a certain point, a few hours into the hike, they walked up this incline and got to this ridge where they could kind of look out over this huge expanse. Just imagine like a, a, a ravine or a wash. And Jason says he suddenly noticed that the, the desert ground below them
4: was just covered in stuff. Over a thousand backpacks and water bottles. I mean, just- What? um, That much? Well, what ends up happening is stuff gets left behind for a couple of different reasons. If you're in route, you might throw something down because you get so tired and your bag just gets so heavy. And those things are kind of sprinkled across these migrant trails. But once you get to the end, past the checkpoint, your smuggler says, okay, we're safe now. We've got to a new road where we can get picked up. Someone else will show up in a truck. And then they will say, all right, the 30 of you get into this van, leave everything behind, change your clothes so it doesn't look like you've just walked for two weeks through this desert. Um, And so when groups were moving really big, you would see things the size of, like, football fields, of just stuff everywhere, Gatorade bottles, Bibles, photographs, um, toys, the kind of random things that you might throw in your bag and say, I'm leaving my home forever, and and these are the things I want to take with me. You know, you, you see things like a diaper bag or a baby bottle, and you wonder, my God, you know, who... Who who just came through this, um, and what's what's happened to them?
1: So. For the next several years, Jason just keeps going back to this stretch of the Sonoran Desert. Ripped clothes, fragments of clothes in bushes. Gathering whatever he could find. Dirty socks. And, you know, like an archaeologist, he would collect this stuff. Bandages. Itemize it. Categorize it.
4: Cocktail dresses. High heel
1: shoes. Try and figure out who it came from. Why it was there. Baby bottles. Hair curlers. Toys. Wrappers. He did this year. Sneakers. Photographs. After a year. Socks. Picking up
4: this. Shoes. Dresses. Picking up that. Backpacks. Bibles. Bottles. And
1: then one day... A human arm. He finds an arm. Wedged between some rocks. Like an entire arm up to the shoulder. Just sort of sticking
4: sticking up between two rocks. I mean, there was no flesh other than the, the, the things that were holding the joint together. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. Jason and his guide, the folks he was there with, they began to search the surrounding areas for other parts of the body.
4: I mean, really the goal was to try to find the skull. Um, because in terms of... You know, um, identification, I mean your best luck is going to be if you can get if you can get the um, pieces of the skull
1: because if you can find pieces of the skull, maybe you can ID the body, and if you can ID the body, maybe you can tell the family here's what happened to your loved one
4: and so we were out there basically digging around for for other parts of this person. We come across a human tooth, some
1: little tiny bits of rib bones,
4: but we never find the skull and I realized that. Nobody's ever gonna identify this person. There's just not enough left of them and this is not not likely to be a case that will be solved.
1: Now, Jason says he knew, of course, that people were dying in the desert, but to see this...
4: The fragments of a person...
1: who ...had basically been erased. You, you know, it's very...
4: Uh, I mean, it's kind of, it just, it sort of just kills you.
1: Eventually, he began to have these nightmares. Snakes coming out of the eyes. About the missing skull. Birds swooping down
4: and, and pecking out the eyes. Coyotes playing soccer with this person's skull. And for weeks,
1: he couldn't shake the simple question. You know, what, what did this to this person? And how many other bodies like this might be out here? How did it get to be like this? And those questions... would end up sending Jason down a sort of rabbit hole. Digging in the library to... to Of forensics papers. Decomposing flesh. Missing persons reports. Hikers who had gone missing. Historical trends. Sociology papers, demography papers. Government documents. Illustrations and the figures that are buried in these appendices. And over the next several years, Jason would end up putting together this truly startling portrait of lost stories, hidden statistics, little-known policy decisions along our Southern border that completely upended how I think about this issue.
2: The immigration
1: issue poses real problems and challenges. That we're constantly fighting about.
5: We will build a
6: great wall along the Southern border.
1: But still never
5: quite seeing. This is part one of a three-part series on our southern border. We'll be doing it today and then next week and the week after. Part one, a hole in the fence.
1: All right, so I, I thought I'd start us off with Jason's question. How did it get to be like this? How did it get to be that so many people cross into America through the desert? Like, that's the classic image you have is someone walking through the desert. Why, out of all the places along the border that you could cross, why is it that so many people are are crossing in the hottest and most unforgiving place imaginable? And one of the things that Jason ended up telling us about that we found most striking was simply the numbers, the yearly numbers of migrant deaths in the desert. And I mean, it is shocking. If you look at the data, there's a very stark moment when things shift. It it turns out that if you're looking at the number of people dying in the Sonoran Desert, the numbers are a bit tough to pin down, but in the early 90s, it's single digits, five bodies one year, six bodies another year, seven bodies another. And then all of a sudden, overnight, in the late 90s, you go from five to 10 bodies to
4: to hundreds. I mean, it used to be that if you wanted to cross the U.S.-Mexico border, you'd go down to San East, to Tijuana at dusk, a place called the soccer field. You would hop the fence with about 100 other people, and you would just bum rush the border patrol, and you— and Half of you would get by, would make it into the U.S., and, and the other half would get caught, sent back, and people would do it again the, the next day. Um, that was a system for a long time. I mean, the, so what changed? Well, in the mid-'90s, there was a lot of pushback against the visibility of, of fence hopping. And it it all kind of starts with this little-known story. Um, there's a, a great book by by this guy Timothy Dunn called um, Blockading the Border. And it's about these Latino high school students in Texas right on the U.S.-Mexico
1: border. We ended up calling the author he mentioned, Timothy Dunn, and and then getting so interested in the story that Dunn laid out for us that we're going to leave Jason behind for a while, and we're going to go on a little trip.
7: Yes.
5: That, by the way, is co-reporter Tracy Hunt? Yes. All right. Well, so where are we going to go?
7: We're going to go to El Paso. El Paso, Texas.
2: (laughs) so.
1: Yeah, so Tracy and I went to El Paso a while back.
7: Do you ever think how you life would have been totally different if you were just born somewhere else? Of course you thought that.
1: If I was born somewhere else? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think about that. I feel like... <laughs> I guess I got distracted at that point. We didn't finish the conversation, but anyway. Two flags flying, the American flag and the Texan flag. We went down to El Paso to visit a high
7: school. Called Bowie High School. Home of the Bowie Bears. Guys, the bell rang. I think you guys are listening much to me. You know, in many respects, it's just, you know, your typical American high school.
5: Good morning, babe. Yeah, baby. Taco Tuesday.
7: You've got your Taco Tuesdays. It's 9th through 12th grade. About 1,200 students.
4: All right, guys. So, please check out your
1: notes. Because it's Texas, you know,
4: (laughs)
7: football is a big
1: deal. And on their campus, they have this huge football stadium with those big, you know, Friday night lights. Uh, They've got a marching band, the pride of the South Side. It's, uh, yeah, your typical Texas
7: high school. Yeah, but, but there is something a little different about it, and that is that almost all the students here... Jennifer
0: is here, Eduardo is here, Jose...
7: ...are Mexican-American. Gisela... Oscar. And, you know, we actually talked to one former teacher.
3: This is Juan Cybert Coronado. I was a teacher at Bowie High School in the 1980s and 1990s. And what did you teach? I taught history. And he said that in all his years teaching at Bowie... Taught there for 21 years and never had a single Anglo student.
7: Really? Really.
1: Yes. Never taught a single white student. But the reason we went to Bowie High School is because something happened there in the early '90s. Something that it sort of, in a in a kind of roundabout and and totally unforeseeable way, completely changed the way we think about the the U.S.-Mexico border. So where, where we're going to start the story is actually in one of one Cybert Coronado's classes. The class was immediately after lunch. And, and on this particular day, they were going to have a debate in class. And one of the debaters, one of the kids who was going to be part of the debate, was late. Yes.
3: Uh, his name was Albert. Albert often came came late to class. And so we'd been waiting and waiting and waiting for him. Ten minutes went by. 15 20. And eventually he showed up being dragged in by this camp security guy.
1: this school security guard.
3: And I thought, you know, the security guard brought him in because he was, you know, out doing some miscreant stuff like smoking pot again. <laughs> and And so I kind of lay into Albert for being late
7: again and for,
3: you know, not holding up his responsibilities to his class. But,
7: but Albert's like, no, 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 no. Albert says that he had been at the handball court playing with his friends. And then when it was time to go from the court back to class... These two Border Patrol agents just came out of nowhere in their green uniforms, demanding to see his papers, like, who are you? Where are you from? Let me see your ID. Yeah. And he, Albert, tries to give them his school ID, but they wouldn't take it. And they actually told him. That he needed a
3: federal ID of some sort for them to believe at all that he was a United States citizen or belonged on the
1: campus. And one's just standing there like, mm-hmm. uh-huh, Border Patrol, really? You know, I
3: was haranguing the kid, obviously.
1: And but then three or four other students in class just
3: kind of stepped in and said, no, what Albert's telling you is true.
1: Not only is Albert telling the truth, but in the last couple of weeks... Border Patrol had been on the handball
3: courts and on the playing fields repeatedly... Stopping students, harassing students. And I was, quite frankly, shocked...
1: Juan says of course he knew that the Border Patrol was around because of where the school is situated, which we'll talk about in a second, but he just never understood how present they were in his students' lives. I was
3: having a hard time processing this.
1: So over the next few weeks, Juan started asking around different students, being like, hey, have you had anything happen with Border Patrol at school? And
3: I got literally hundreds of stories.
7: I was walking home from school, and, you know, I had my backpack on. This is Nydia Rodriguez, who was a freshman at the time. All of a sudden, I saw this truck, a Border Patrol truck, and it was speeding my way. A couple of agents got out of the truck and started questioning her. Where am I from or where am I going?
1: Basically, we were all rounded up.
7: Ernesto Munoz remembers walking to school with a bunch of kids.
1: We were searched.
4: Our backpacks,
7: and again, you know, a couple of agents got out, started asking him questions. You
4: know, where we were born, our date of birth, what classes we were taking.
7: We stop. They get out of the truck. Marcella De Leon, who was walking with a friend near school, and they go, "What do you have in the bag?" And I go, "Books." You know, what else would I have in my bag? They're like, "Well, let us see." I was
8: walking. They yelled at me, "Hey, get over here!"
7: Ricardo Vielma.
8: They sped up to me and they stopped in front of me and asked me, "You know, what's what's in the bag?" I was like, "Books." One of them ripped the bag out from my hands as I was trying to pull it away from them. The other one grabbed me and pushed me up against the truck, forcibly took the bag away, rifled through it, pushed me off of the, or they pulled me away from the truck, uh, threw my bag at me and told me to get out of here.
1: As these stories came out, it became clear that even the staff had had its run-ins with the Border Patrol. We, we talked to the assistant football coach, Ben Murillo. He told us there was this moment he was driving with two of his football players. They got pulled over by the Border Patrol, and one of them actually pointed a gun at his head.
3: Never had a gun pulled on me. So I thought, OK, my life is over. And I identified myself. My name is Coach Ben Murillo, coach at Bowie High School. I have two of my football players. I would really appreciate if you'd holster your gun. And the guy barked at me, I appreciate if you shut your mouth and get out of the car.
1: Eventually, the agent did holster the gun. Ben did get out of the car. Everything was fine. What was that like, having that right in your... It was
6: one of the scariest things in my life. Wow. Why was the Border Patrol... on the grounds of the school do they have some reason well to, so
1: let's let's set the scene a little bit uh, uh, um, more maybe because I, I think to understand what was going on at Bowie High School you have to understand something else
6: the legend of El Paso
1: you have to understand El Paso there's a spirit
6: a flavor so come on amigo, and see it for yourself
3: From 30,000 feet above
1: the desert floor, I
3: see it there
1: below. right on the border of Texas, Mexico, and New Mexico. It's right there. It's
7: right there. It's also the biggest
1: city.
5: The West Texas city of El Paso.
7: That shares a border with Mexico, too.
1: And the other thing to know about it is that it's like it kind of has a mirror city on the other side of the border, which is Juarez. Juarez. Ciudad Juarez. The largest city on the U.S.-Mexico border. So the two cities are separated by this little sliver of the Rio Grande, but they were essentially the same city up until 1848, when the U.S. invaded Mexico and annexed half the country. And even now, according to Juan...
3: This mythical division between these two cities, it just doesn't exist for most of us. I mean, I go to the dentist over there. I buy cigarettes over there. Okay, yeah. I smoke, yes. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, almost everybody in El Paso knows people who live in Ciudad Juarez. Yeah. People in Ciudad Juarez know people who have family members yeah. who live in El Paso. Yeah. I mean, this is literally one community.
1: But the thing is, when everything was going down at Bowie in the early 90s, it was a community in crisis. So, come on, amigo. Tonight, sit for yourself. The Peso
6: crisis has spilled across the Rio Grande.
1: In the 80s, the Mexican peso crashed.
6: A dramatically devalued peso is causing havoc
4: with prices and wages.
1: And, and so people in Juarez started flocking to El Paso because, well, that's where the jobs were. Like jobs in construction. Or childcare, gardening.
7: So you had tons of people getting these permits to come into El Paso legally, but then you had all these other people. Workers who can't get permits required by U.S. law. Who couldn't get permits, but they still needed to work. Simply respond to the laws of supply. And so they
6: started coming, too. Making illegal dashes across the border to the United States at unprecedented
1: numbers. I mean, it was as high as like 10,000 people a day. A day. Coming back and forth illegally, basically, for their commute to work. It was chaos.
5: It was a mess here.
1: We spoke to this former Border Patrol agent, a guy named David Ham,
5: Anti-smuggling special agent.
1: He told us that when, when he was on that job, before dawn, you could go down to certain parts, the Rio Grande.
8: You'd have
5: 100, 200 people
1: lined up. Waiting on the river's edge. Sun come up and here they would come.
5: It's morning in America and the rush hour has begun. The rush to cross the Rio Grande into El Paso.
1: And there are videos where you can see this. You, you see people wading into the shallow parts of the river to cross over to El Paso. If they don't want to get wet, they can pay a young entrepreneur a small fee and raft across. And so for people like David, these Border Patrol agents... Okay, here comes about 100. It becomes this cat-and-mouse game
5: where... Probably the way we had always done business. They come in, you chase them, catch them, and send them back.
1: Day and night and day and night, it, it
5: was... it was A never-ending job. And it was something, you know, you'd catch the same guys two or three times a shift sometimes. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> yeah. it was it was chaos. Obviously, we're not... Accomplishing 100% of our mission.
7: And this is actually kind of hilarious. So like um, around this time in 1992, there was this television interview and Dale Musigades, he's the sector chief of the Border Patrol in El Paso. He's wearing his green hat with his green uniform with the gold shield on his chest.
5: If we were not here and they did not keep a lid on this situation.
7: And in the shot behind him.
5: Uh, there would be just an absolute free inflow from other countries.
7: You can see people climbing up the banks of the Rio Grande (laughs) and just walking into El Paso. That's like having
6: Wyatt Earp standing in front of three bank robbers robbing a bank.
7: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And um, like, so, okay, how many entries? Um, All right, so it was reported at the time that for every one migrant the Border Patrol caught, there were at least three to five who snuck in and didn't get caught. Mm. And the Border Patrol said that this was because they just didn't have the resources. They didn't have the money or the agents to apprehend all these people that are coming in.
1: Which finally brings us back. (laughs) To Bowie High School. Okay, all right. Okay, yeah, let's try it. Because there's two important things about Bowie. Okay, I'm counting my steps, actually. Here, okay, from the sidewalk. One, One two, Bowie is right, right. Three, four, five, six. Right on the border. Eight, 49. But basically, it's 50. That was 50 steps. 50 steps. 50 steps from the Bowie campus into Mexico. Yeah. And two, uh, the former assistant football coach and teacher, Ben Murillo, he showed me. Yeah. What's the, what is that? This fence. Part of the old fence. Oh, that's part of the old fence, you yeah. think? El Paso in the 70s put up a bunch of fencing on the border to curb illegal immigration. Um, so it's like a, it's, it's not much taller than us. But it was, it was pretty flimsy. They called it the tortilla curtain. And right at this spot, across from Bowie High School, there was a hole in the fence. Yeah. And David Ham, a uh, former Border Patrol agent, told us that what that meant was that you had migrants, you had a lot of migrants who would be coming through that hole in the fence.
5: Through Bowie High School.
7: And he claimed that it wasn't just people looking for work, it was also people bringing in drugs.
5: And the way I know that, because I worked our anti smuggling unit, would we'll watch them come through.
7: And so Border Patrol agents had taken to just sort of hanging out around the school, on the school's property, on the football field, across the street from the school. <laughs> like, just, yeah. they were just there all the time.
1: There were even rumors that Border Patrol agents would go undercover as students and that they would, you know, wander the halls, that they would go into the locker
3: rooms. I'd noticed bu- the uh, the uh, Suburbans parked on the
1: Bowie campus. Yeah, again, former Bowie teacher, Juan Cybert Coronado.
3: But the whole reason, you know, that I thought they were there was the chain link is cut and they need to stop people from entering into a high school. Right. Instead of realizing that what they're doing is they're using the high school as
1: a hunting ground. And so, and so, to Juan, when he started hearing about all these stories of these 14, 15, 16 year old kids getting stopped and shaken down, it wasn't about Border Patrol trying to stop migrants from coming in or trying to stop drugs from coming across the border.
3: It was the Border Patrol is simply stopping people because they were brown. And that really, uh, this is radio, angered me.
7: (laughs) But for most of these kids...
3: It was nothing...
1: Like, out of the ordinary.
7: You know, kids like Ernesto Munoz, Ricardo Vielma. That was just day-to-day life. Talking even to some of the committee members. Tony Santos. They told me, ah, don't worry about it. Growing up in this poor neighborhood right next to the border. That's just uh
4: way of life uh, here in South El Paso. It wasn't uh, like a concern, like, oh, no, you got stopped.
8: You go to the park uh, and shoot some some basketball. You tell your, your, your schoolmates, you know, guess what happened after school. It was like,
3: you know, ha-ha, you got stopped. You know, it's probably because of your haircut or probably because of you know, how you're dressed or whatever.
1: So the students were more likely to laugh about it than be angry. But in his U.S. history class that year, Juan started teaching his kids about civil rights, uh, actually getting them to debate the different ways of thinking about civil rights.
3: Talking about stuff like... Uh, the
8: activities which have taken place in Birmingham over the last few days...
3: A uh, letter from the Birmingham Jail.
8: Uh, to my mind, marked the nonviolent movement coming of age.
5: And
2: it's liberty or death.
1: Malcolm X's ballot for the bullet.
2: It's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody.
1: And so these students are learning about. Farmworker strikes in California in the 1960s. We learn about
8: Cesar Chavez. And the
2: workers know that they are no longer
8: alone. We learn about Dolores Huerta, uh, Reyes Lopez Tijerina. And it was like, okay, I'm reading the book, and then I look
1: out outside the window, and there they are. Border patrol agents in SUVs on the parking lot, stopping students.
4: I think that's when you know, we were like, wait, just kind
7: of like it felt. Not okay. I mean, I didn't fully know exactly the letter of the law. That's Nidia Rodriguez again. But I knew that what they were doing was wrong. And And eventually some of these students started to get together. Met
8: and talked. Like, do you think this is right? What do you think this is about?
7: Telling each other, you know, that this is wrong. We
8: talked about
3: how we wanted things to be different.
8: Let's see what we can do about it because this has to stop. All right, that's what's
5: up. Coming up, Juan and his students fight back. We'll continue in just a moment.
0: Let's do some more warm-ups.
5: Let's do...
7: This is Monica calling from Oakland, California. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org.
0: Radiolab is supported by ZBiotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, ZBiotics Pre Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow, as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off.
1: Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.
0: Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers.
1: To have Andy Kaufman,
3: Frank Zappa, and Burkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history.
0: I'm Jessica Vosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts.
5: Chad. Robert. Lathef.
1: Tracy. And... Hello? Ricardo. Um, and Tony. Okay. To all right, so uh, some of these kids at Bowie High School, they actually belong to this group.
8: Mecha. Mecha. Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano de Aslan.
1: Which is a Chicano civil rights
2: group. That has been around for a while, I guess, since the 1960s.
7: It was a college group, but these kids at Bowie actually petitioned them to have a chapter at the high school. And... Um, and Mecha said, sure.
8: We were the first ones to get a collegiate group.
1: And they asked Juan if he could, you know, supervise. We would meet about once a
3: week, and our meetings tended to be 30, 40, 50 kids packed into a classroom.
7: And for one of these meetings, Juan brought in one of his friends, a woman named Susan Kern. She worked for the Border Rights Coalition. And so she comes in and these students start telling her, you know, what's been going on? And they ask her, do we have any rights here? She tells them, absolutely you do. Because according to the U.S. Constitution, the Border Patrol or really any officer of the law.
3: They cannot stop you without reasonable cause.
7: They had to have seen you cross the border, or when you saw them, you started acting fidgety, or you ran away, or something.
3: They can't just arbitrarily stop you. Question you. Just because of the color of your skin. That's not enough
1: to stop you. Because if that's the only reason they have to stop you, then they're violating your Fourth
8: Amendment right.
7: The right to be protected from unreasonable searches and seizures.
1: Exactly.
8: They just said, you know what, You're getting your rights are getting stomped all over. Let's see what we can do about this, because it needs to stop.
1: After Susan explained that the rights were being violated, the conversation turned to, what are we going to do about it? We had a lot of
3: students who were suggesting things that were probably, you know, slightly inappropriate. Like, how about we just curse them out? Which I thought, well, maybe that's not a bad approach. But uh, apparently... According to Juan's friend Susan... Was not the right response. <laughs>
7: okay.
1: That can maybe get you in trouble. Can be considered assault, and so
7: another student said, "Well, what if we just run away from them?" Uh, no.
1: Another kid was like, "What if we fight back?"
7: Oh God! Definitely don't do that. Mm-mm. But
1: finally. One of the students who's been watching Law & Order
8: Debbie Mason, you're under arrest for the attempted
3: murder of your mother.
8: No, this is a mistake.
3: Who knew all about saying
8: You have the right to remain silent.
3: The right to remain silent? Carolyn Tyler, you have the right to remain silent. He was like, that's a
7: thing. It's your Fifth Amendment constitutional right. And it's something that you typically hear I have, however, been instructed by my counsel Not to testify based on my Fifth Amendment constitutional rights. When rich white dudes get in trouble. On the
5: advice of counsel, I invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege and respectfully decline to answer your question.
7: But this one buoy Mecha
1: student was like, why don't we do that? And that's exactly what our students started doing.
7: After that, when Border Patrol agents would stop students and say, hey, give me your papers, some of these students would say, no.
0: I want to use my Fifth Amendment
3: right.
7: I want to take the Fifth Amendment. Fifth
3: Amendment. right to remain silent.
7: Simple as that. I have the
8: right not to incriminate myself.
3: To remain
0: silent.
8: I do not want to answer your questions. Sorry, I had a burn. Okay, ready?
0: I have a Fifth Amendment right to, to... To remain silent. Remain
7: silent.
8: I don't want you to go through any of my stuff.
7: Right to remain silent. You're not going through my backpack. I'm not talking to you. I want
8: to use my Fifth Amendment. Fifth Amendment right. And the message started
3: spreading around. Right to remain silent.
0: Remain silent. 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 silent.
3: silent. That we really don't need to answer these people's questions. To remain si- silent?
0: Yes. Yeah. Perfect. You nailed it.
1: Well, I, I, I'm kind of trying to imagine myself being being you and giving advice to these students. And on the one hand, obviously, this is their legal right not to mm-hmm. provide this information. On the other hand. I can imagine that you know I've heard that there are these border patrol abuses. There are uh, you know these. There are times when this doesn't go well, and I'm telling these students to go out and basically you know stonewall these agents, and they it, it could put them in harm's way.
3: And it did frequently. Uh, students were harassed for this. Students were. The most notorious case is the case of David Renteria.
2: And uh, the way it all started was on June the 3rd.
1: So this is David Renteria from a documentary that was made in the 90s about Bowie High School.
7: Yeah, so David Renteria, he was a senior at Bowie.
3: A legally blind student who was coming home from graduation
2: practice. And um,
7: And this one day, he and his friend are just walking down the street and a border patrol truck rolls up. They
2: stop and they asked us for a citizen, and I respond, you know, you're a citizen. My friend did the same thing, and they asked us again, what if it's your citizenship? I said, you a citizen. They asked us again, and I said, you're a citizen. And I got—I looked at my friend, said, you know what? It's gone. I kept on walking. And uh, the border patrol agent on the passenger side said, uh, if we didn't stop, they were going to beat us up real bad to, go to the point that we weren't going to be able to move.
7: So this border patrol agent gets out of the truck, comes up to David. And started threatening to break his arm if he tried to walk away.
2: I felt his hand on my arm. Um, Left album. He jerked it back. He jerked it. I turned and faced him. And, and I looked at him. I'm, taking the fifth minute. I'm exercising the right to remain And he got me he slammed me against the fence. And uh, he put his left arm on the back of my neck. And he kicked my legs.
7: Slapped him in his face, apparently. And, you know, David wasn't physically injured after that. He was freaked out.
1: But the reason that Juan called this particular incident notorious is because immediately after, the local news in El Paso picked it up and started doing a lot more reporting on, on Border Patrol, on Buoy,
8: and so did
5: Come to El Paso, Texas. Good
8: National news. Good morning, freaking America. You know what I mean? That's, that's that's pretty huge.
5: The daily invasion has strained the relationship between the border Patrol and some people at Bowie High School.
8: You know, and 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 we're talking to us. We all have rights, and that our rights daily on, on a day-to-day
2: course are being violated. Why are they harassing?
7: Because we're Hispanic. Because the color of our
2: skin. Because we live right on the border, and because well, we live in a really poor neighborhood, and that's the only reason.
1: And as this news started to grow, the Border Patrol sector chief, Dale Musigades, decided he was going to come to Bowie to talk to the students. Is that something you remember, him
8: showing up uh (laughs) to— Oh, yeah, Mr. Musigades. Uh, That guy was kind of doing damage control at that point.
5: When Agent Dale Musigades met with about 40 students to discuss the alleged harassment, he kept us out.
8: We tried to contact Dale Musigades
1: multiple times for this story, but he did not reply to our voicemails or emails. But they
6: patched them, I think, Wednesday morning.
1: We were able to get footage of that meeting Musagades kept Good Morning America out of hmm. because one of the students uh, taped this and then we managed to get our hands on it. Huh. So it's like 30,
8: 40 kids from Mecha in this classroom, and Dale Musagades. He was sitting in front of us wearing a suit and tie, trying to put things into perspective. Uh,
1: he started telling the students, like, look, the holes in the fence.
5: I can't hold those holes.
1: We keep patching them up. They keep getting cut open. That's something.
5: It's a commitment, and I said it. I would try. It's a commitment. I can't. I. I don't think there's any way in the world to keep those
1: holes closed. And he told the students they they'd busted some people who had brought drugs through Bowie. I now have another
8: case that's under
7: investigation.
1: So Musigades is like we're essentially trying to stop the flow of drugs here. Why are you guys complaining so much? <laughs> But eventually...
8: some of the students... Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on, you have
7: your hand over here. Go ahead. These students started speaking up. Are you going to ask a question? Give them, give them your name. You. The border, my I'm you on Delta.
1: One student stands up and says, A, you're harassing us, and that's why we're upset. And B, your strategy for capturing border crossers seems to be to herd them all into the school where they're penned in.
7: Uh, you're treating them beings like cattle. What you're doing is you run, in, you run them into a place where they can't get out, and then you circle them in. It treating uh, like cattle those people
5: uh, will not stop or will not obey the law. So you have to at some somehow or another apprehend. Them. I don't I you know, I don't know a better way to do it. I, uh, but not at the sacrifice of our
1: rights. It's a little hard to hear, but he said, Not at the sacrifice of our rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
5: What do you mean, mean? The sacrificing their rights? They're oh, illegally. Oh, right, right. no, they have rights They have they, have uh, they do not have rights to come into the United States
8: illegally.
1: What did it feel like to be sitting in that
3: meeting? I mean well it felt bizarre. I mean that, you know, somebody is denying what everybody sees with their own eyes.
8: Yeah. There was no face value to what what he said, you know, because at that point we were uh, cynical about the whole situation. And, you know, you can't undo the stuff that was already done.
1: So the meeting goes poorly. uh, And a bunch of the students and some of the staff, including Ben Murillo, the assistant football coach who had a gun pointed in his face, um, they all together decide that they want to sue the Border Patrol. The phone
8: rings one day.
1: And eventually, they call up this guy.
8: He said, we're getting ready to sue the Border Patrol. Will you be our local counsel? And I said, not only yes, but hell yes.
1: <laughs> El Paso civil rights lawyer Albert Armendariz Jr. Were you optimistic?
8: I mean, uh, um, it's, it's never an easy job. Suing the government is not easy.
3: When you live on the border and work in Segunda Barrio, you are never optimistic that a governmental system is going to work
1: for you. So... October 23rd, 1992, the trial between Bowie High School and the Border Patrol begins. And apparently the courtroom was pretty much divided in half. On one half, you had the Border Patrol, like a ton of agents in full uniform, sitting there. Uh, on the other half, you had
8: these Bowie students. Dressed in their finest.
7: Sunday dresses, slacks, shirts.
8: Those kids were little troopers. And they all got up on the stand, told their stories.
7: And then eventually... Border Patrol Sector Chief Dale Musigades testifies.
1: Yeah. Do you remember what the defense's argument was?
8: Well, they had lots of arguments. Um,
1: Now, we can't verify the specifics of what happened in the courtroom because a lot of the court documents have been destroyed. But Musigades got up there, and his basic argument was that if you look at the U.S. Code of Federal Regulations, Section 1357, Powers of Immigration Officers and Employees, uh, number one, officers have the power to interrogate any alien or person believed to be an alien as to his right to be or to remain in the United States. And they can do that without a warrant. And then skipping down a bit from that. Um, they can do that, quote, within a reasonable distance from any external boundary
5: of the United States. What's a a reasonable distance?
1: Well, this is what's nuts is I I don't know exactly what went into the determination of what that is, but the the distance is 100
5: miles. Really?
1: Yeah. In that 100-mile zone, Border Patrol has the power to interrogate, has the power to arrest without warrant, and they can also, and I'm quoting here, uh, quote, search for aliens in any railway car, aircraft, conveyance, or vehicle within that distance. And then on top of that, within a narrower distance of 25 miles from the border, they can go right onto private property whenever they want. There's, It's
8: like the, this little zone. That's designed to prevent Border Patrol officers from being charged with trespass when patrolling the border. I, I cross-examined Chief Muzigate, and so—
1: What Musigades was arguing is that, like, if they have all this power and if they can go on, you know, private property right up on the border and you got this high school on the border, then there's no question that they can be on school property and do their jobs.
8: That's how they read that. What they couldn't understand is they were doing it in a way that violated the Constitution and that is against the supreme law of the land.
1: This was Albert's argument that – no matter what powers you have, you can't violate somebody's Fourth Amendment right. You have to have a legitimate reason to stop somebody.
6: So, the, um, what did the court, um, what ultimately
7: happened? Okay, before this court, finding of, oh, so, so findings of facts and conclusions of law, Bunton, comma, senior district judge, before this court, it's plaintiff's motion for temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction and memorandum of law in support pursuant to rule six. I don't, does that sound any? Like anything to you? Yeah, yeah. He's saying,
6: "Here's what we got in front of me here." All right, okay. Gonna... That's... Read to the next. Read, read the next paragraph down, down um, the
7: Jurisdiction and venue. I'm going
6: Okay, th- that means keep read the next. Yeah. Leading the next. Findings
7: paragraph. of fact, the litigation, the named in- individual plaintiffs. Are Go to United the very,
6: very bottom <laughs> last paragraph. See what that <laughs> <laughs> is it? I, I hereby order.
7: The court hereby enjoins the Immigration and National Naturalization Service, the INS, which is above at the time was above the Border Patrol. Uh-huh from stopping and questioning an individual as to his or her right to be or remain in the United States unless the agent has reasonable suspicion based on specific articulable facts involving more than the mere appearance of the individual being of Hispanic descent. Okay, that's a
6: fancy way of saying stop judging people by their looks. Sign the judge. Yes. (laughs) So they won. They won. It was just
3: absolute
4: elation.
7: There was a big celebratory school assembly. The whole school. Oh, wow. Tony think- Santos was there. But we were
4: yeah, yeah.
7: yeah. We were all happy. There were all these parties.
4: People gave us. <laughs>
8: plaques. I think I may even have some on the wall out there.
7: <laughs> it was pretty awesome. Again, former student, Ricardo Vielma. It was crazy, to say the least. The
8: final ruling holds that the Border
3: Patrol did violate constitutional rights. You just don't see the agents on our campus
1: anymore? That's the assistant football coach, Ben Mario, who ended up being the lead plaintiff in the
8: lawsuit. But they're treating us like people, not like second-class citizens. Uh, not like we have to be submissive simply because they're federal agents. You know, we couldn't believe that we took on the federal government at one. That was one of the first times that I was really proud of what our government, you know, stands for.
1: And Ricardo said coming out of federal court that day it was like him and seven other students and they came out and there was a bunch of other students and faculty from the school
8: there. Everybody was like cool let's go back to school hop in the car like no we kind of want to bask in this. So we walked from uh, the federal courthouse downtown to Bowie High School and you know when we were getting there we were were all just kind of tearing up we were proud we were just happy and and, and surprised all at once it was just we were beside ourselves. And, you know, we had camera crews and news crews waiting for us as we were walking up because I guess they they got wind that we were just walking back to school.
1: But in the wake of this victory, in the months following, there would be a chain of events that would really drastically change the U.S.-Mexico border forever and take us to really to where we are now.
7: When you, because you just, you wrote in that essay sort of just sort you don't see the connection, you don't think there's a connection, but the fact that the connection is being made still sort of weighs on you?
3: Of course it weighs on us, okay? Because, I mean, because of us, fences were built. Because the fences were built, maybe 10,000 people have died in the desert.
2: them might hold some hope. Men tore their faces open, chewing saguaros and prickly pears, leaving gutted plants that looked like animals had torn them apart with their claws. The green here was gray. They walked west, though they didn't know it. They had no concept anymore of destination. They were in a vast trickery of sand. One of them said
6: so how this story goes from jubilation and pride to to death in the desert that's the subject of our next episode
5: this episode of our of our story was reported by latif Nasser and tracy hunt produced by matt kilty with bethel hopte tracy hunt and latif Nasser. Special thanks to Timothy Dunn for writing the book that really guided our story of Bowie High School. To Chris Swan and Kevin Lavelle
6: with KVIA for the archival footage that they gave us and to Gustavo Revelles at the El Paso Independent
5: School District. Principal Francisco Ordaz, Sam Attell, Grace Hernandez and the rest of the staff at Bowie High School. Thanks also to Maggie Southert-Gladstone from Hachette for allowing us to use excerpts from The Devil's Highway and thanks to Eric Robledo, Michael Wells and the Parsons School of Design at the New School. And to Susan Kern And to Debbie Nathan. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. We'll be back next week with more from the series.
0: This is Rachel calling from Fredonia, New York. Radiolab was created by Jad Abumrad and is produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our Director of Sound Design. Maria Matasar-Padilla is our Managing Director. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Maggie Bartomelio, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethel Hobtee, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kelty, Robert Krowich, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Melissa O'Donnell, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Amanda Aronchik, Shima Oliayi, and Jake Arlo. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris.